Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. We're making a huge claim here this morning. This is, this is enormous, and I realize that not everybody in here believes what we're about to talk about, and this isn't going to be a sermon where I just try to pull out all the proofs for you to make sure that you agree, but I want you to know that even if you do not believe the claim that we're making this morning, it's not like Christians have some special thing in our DNA that makes it easier for us to believe a wild claim. It's not like God has doused us with some sort of like faith gene. It's just that we have worked through some things as well, and we're hopeful that you can too. The claim we're making this morning has the power to change how you take in information in your brain. I mean, that's nuts. To think that your work tomorrow, your parenting tomorrow, your, your, your marriage tomorrow, the information we're talking about today has the power to transform how you take, how you think about that, your perspective on that. It's pretty wild. Now, the claim is not a surprise. Nobody woke up this morning thinking, well, I wonder what day it is when they put on their pastel shirt, right? Nobody's confused about the claim that we're making. What we're saying is that Jesus actually died. His heart stopped beating. His lungs stopped inflating with air. His synapses stopped firing. Blood stopped coursing through his veins. He died. And there were some people who cared about him who took him down off the cross. And because they were kind of in a hurry, because the Sabbath was coming and you can't work on the Sabbath and burying people is working, they put him in a tomb really quickly. But the claim we are making, the dying part isn't that crazy. I mean, that happens, unfortunately, all the time. The claim we're making is that as he was laying in that tomb, his lungs reinflated with air and his synapses started firing again and his heart started beating again and blood started flowing through his veins and his eyes opened and he woke up. That's the claim. And I'm telling you, I know it's nuts. Some of you don't believe it and I get that and that's okay and I'm really glad you're here. Some of you uh, have been around it a long time and you've been through many, many Easter's and you don't get it. And I, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just, I totally understand. Like you grew up going to church and they made a big deal and people would say things like he's risen and then other people would cheer and get excited and shout. And you're like, I, I don't get it. Like I believe in miracles. I believe that, that the Red Sea parted and the, the children of Israel walked through on dry land. I believe that David took down Goliath with a stone. I believe those things. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but I'm not exactly sure how that's supposed to really make much of a functional difference in my life. I don't know that I really get it, and I don't want to admit that. And believe me, I understand that. We don't want to come to church and be like, excuse me, I don't really understand what the big deal about the resurrection is, because everybody else seems so excited about it. They all got dressed up and ate a bunch of candy this morning, and you don't want to be the one person that's like, I'm not sure I get it. I get that. I get that. So we're going to talk about how this matters to you today as well. And then some of you are here in the room, and you're like, I just, I just don't want to forget it, because I do believe it. I do get it, but it's not always the thing that is just central in my life. It's not always this reality that I hold on to when I think about all the time. It just, it kind of slips through my hands a little bit like sand. I want to believe it. I want to make it matter. I want it to be part of my life, but it's just just not always there. 
So here's where we are in our big story. We're in the middle of a sermon series, and if you haven't been here, don't worry, I'm going to get you caught up in about 10 seconds, which begs the question is, why did everybody else have to sit through sermons the last few weeks? But I'll, I promise I'll get you caught up. Here's where we are in the story. The story was, like, when Jesus was born, he's this little baby, and do you remember those wise men from the east? They came to Israel, and they went to Israel's king, the grown-up king, and they said, excuse me, sir, can you tell us where the new king is? Now, that was a big surprise for the king. He was like, oh, wait, what, the who king now, the new king? But that's the claim right from the beginning of the Gospels is that a new king has arrived. Now, Jesus, when he grew up and he started teaching, hey, guys, I am the king. And I, I know a lot of us were like, well, yeah, he just meant that in a spiritual sense, right? He just meant that we should you know, give our hearts to him. And that's how we've spiritualized it today. But when he was walking around Israel making that claim, people were listening to it as if he was saying, I am now the emperor. It's no longer Caesar Augustus. It is now me. I am the king. And they had all these followers that were starting to believe it. They were starting to think, okay, I think this is true. I think he's the Messiah that the prophets have promised. I think he's the one. I think I get it. And the story is starting to unfold. And then you get to the cross. And it is, it is not even a plot twist. It's the end of the story. Not a twist. It's an end. It's the end. It's kind of like if you're watching a Hallmark movie and the two main characters don't fall in love, you'd be like, well, that's not really a Hallmark movie. <laughs> the, the executive that moved back to the small town and then she ran a little bakery, but it was failing. And he was representative of some conglomerate that was going to come in and steal away all the jobs in the community. But finally, he's humbled and he realizes his heart belongs to this small town and he's in love with this girl. If those two don't get together at the end of the movie, it's not a Hallmark movie. It'd be like if you were watching Captain America and he loses to the Red Skull at the end. You'd be like, what? That's not a Marvel movie. The good guys win at the end of the movie. The cross is not the good guys winning. It's not playing out like it's supposed to. Now, we know that the cross was a coronation. We know that when they put that purple robe on him, when they put that crown of thorns on him, when they lifted up the cross from the earth, he was high and lifted up, and it was the opposite of every coronation they'd ever seen. But we know that he was being declared as king in only the way Jesus could be declared as king. But they didn't know that. It just looked like an end to the story. And listen, if you're here this morning and you don't believe it, and you don't get it, then you are in perfect company because Jesus' followers did not believe it and they did not get it either. Here's a life truth. Here's a little secret to life for you. Just a little thing that you need to know. When you have a specific story in your head, it is really hard to change the script. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. I'm really bad at this with texts. Yes, is that, is that my wife? So this is, this is what it looks like for me. Here's a, uh, this is me to my wife, um, Karini Beanie, by the way. So, uh, so Kareen, you're picking the kids up from school, right? That's, that's the plan, right? No, I am not picking the kids up from school. Uh, and so me not being really good with changing the script. Oh, great. See you guys at home soon. Now, if you're like Corrine, you're like, I don't think reading comprehension is your thing. 
I feel like you didn't actually read my previous texts. And then I say, oh, no, 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 I got it. You're picking up the kids from school. I'm reading it correctly. And then Kareen texts back something like this. Just, just a sign. Because I have a story in my head, I have a hard time adjusting to a different situation because this is the way this is supposed to unfold. And we have stories. We, we all have stories about everything. We all do. For example, um, a story about career that, that has been pumped into your veins since you were a little child. The American story of a career is that you get good grades. So that gets you a good scholarship so that you can go to a good school so that you can get the highest paying degree that you you can possibly get so that you can find a job at the highest paying firm that you can possibly find so that you can pour into your 401k so that you can retire maybe even retire early so that you can and we're not sure about that piece of it people struggle with that piece of it but maybe play golf maybe sit and read maybe take up a hobby maybe do all the things you should have been doing all along but that's the story of the american dream born out in our careers we have stories of, of marriage where you're going to meet the most beautiful girl. You're going to meet the most handsome man. And when you look at each other, it's a Hallmark movie unfolding in your heart. And you're going to love one another and you're going to fully understand one another and you're going to remember every major anniversary and birthday. Why do people think marriage is hard is what you're going to think before you get married. And then you'll get married and you'll have a cute starter home. It'll probably be in the city and you'll have a nice picket fence and you'll have 2.5 kids and it'll be wonderful and the garden will always be tended and the dishes will always be done and the laundry will always be magically folded. You'll never buy a minivan, not you. You'll send out the perfect Christmas card to your 1,000 friends every year. Life will be glorious. And then in the evenings, you, hand in hand, will stand on the front porch and you'll watch the sunset as you recite poetry to one another. <laughs> and you'll both die at the same time of old age in your sleep. That's the story of marriage. But you know what happens in real marriages? The script changes. And then all of a sudden you're dealing with like, well, this is not what I thought it was going to be. That's not what I thought it was going to be. The secret to life is adjusting to the script that is unfolding before you, given to you by God, rather than trying to force your story to meet some different narrative. Now, I say all that because it's true, but I say all that because the Hebrew people in the time of Christ had a story that they wanted to see unfold. They had a specific story, and their story was, we were once a great nation. We were once a proud people, but we have fallen on centuries of hard times. We have been oppressed. We have been occupied. But there was a king with a capital K who was promised by the prophets, and he was going to come fix it all. He was going to come into our nation, and he was going to round up followers. He was going to speak great speeches, and people would be incited to revolution, and he would gather soldiers Okay, fishermen, but maybe we can train them. And he would bring crowds of people and they would storm the capital in Jerusalem and they would kick out all the Romans and then they would take this king and they would put him on the throne in Jerusalem and our nation would once reclaim its former glory. That 
was the story of the average Hebrew person. And they began to see that story unfold in the life of Christ and then crucifixion. This is not how the story should unfold. If the text messages Jesus had with his followers, they probably would have read something like this. Okay, Jesus, here's the plan. This is Peter. Destroy Romans, reclaim the throne, restore our former glory. And then Jesus would have responded, uh, no, that is the opposite of what I've been saying. Totally, completely. How many times do I have to say it? I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again in three days. And then Peter would respond with something because he's a lot like all of us. Once we have a story in our head, no, totally got it. Bloody revolt, grabbing swords now, prepare to take the throne, can't wait. Even up until the minute of Jesus' arrest, this is the story Peter had in his mind, which is why he cut off Malchus's ear as they were trying to arrest Jesus because he was looking for bloody revolt. It did not involve Jesus being arrested, beaten, and crucified. Because you can't be king when you're dead. It's really hard. You can't lead from the grave. You can't be on the throne when you're in a tomb. The cross wasn't a twist in the story in their minds. It was an ending. So what we're going to do, we're going to walk through a, a, just a super short text. I've taken a lot of time to set this up. So we're going to walk through a super short text talking about the resurrection. I think this is cool. The text we're going to read, it's only eight verses, so it'll be fast. But the whole story that we're going to read unfolds in less than 10 minutes. It's just 10 minutes of their life, and it completely changed their world, and it completely changed the world. Just 10 minutes. It's wild to think about what can happen in 10 minutes that completely changed everything. All right, a couple things to note as we read this story. It's out of the book of Mark, and if you've ever read your Bible, you're like, where did this Mark character come from? He's not mentioned within the Gospels. Why is he writing a Gospel? Well, it seems like Mark was an assistant to Peter, who was an apostle, and it seems like Mark is writing down what he has been told to write down from Peter. So that means you're hearing Peter's point of view, which is very interesting to know. And if you listen, you'll start to notice there's a, a rhythm, a cadence to this story and how it's told as if Peter has recounted it many times and he knows exactly what to emphasize and what to leave out. And you get this perfect little encapsulation of the resurrection story. So Mark chapter 16, verse 1. Mark 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Remember, rushed burial in the tomb. They got to make it not smell bad. That's why they're bringing spices. It's kind of gruesome to think about. Dead body smells. The ladies were going back to finish the job. What is the, what is the fact that they had gathered spices and they're walking back to the tomb tell us about what they believed had happened to Jesus? They're bringing spices to cover up a dead body's smell because they believe he's dead, which means nobody, nobody was thinking resurrection. Nobody was like, ah, I'll bet he's just messing with us. I'll bet he's coming back. I'll bet he's going to go in that tomb and then we're going to go to the tomb and then the stone's going to be. Nobody's thinking that. Everybody is thinking this is over, this is done with, this is finished. Not a faint hope, not a maybe, it's a story that ended in tragedy in their minds. Everybody was resuming their pre-Jesus life. 
You just kind of revert back to the script that you know. Jesus was changing the script on them, and they're just reverting back. Peter literally was going back to fishing. He didn't know what else to do. I thought I was going to be some amazing person in the new kingdom of God, and now the king is dead, and I'm just going to go back, and I'm going to fish. That's all I can do. The people on the road to Emmaus, they were walking home, seven miles home, because they didn't know what else to do. The story was over. Nobody was thinking resurrection. Mark chapter 16, verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, the sun is just over the horizon. They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other. These are the women. They asked each other, who's going to roll that stone away? We brought the spices, but forgot this one detail. This is a picture of not the tomb. They claim if you go to Israel and you ask somebody where's the tomb of Jesus, they'll point you to a tomb, but I'm kind of skeptical that they know because there's too much incentive for us to be like, oh, this is where Jesus was buried, and uh, you want to take a peek inside, that'll be 20 bucks. People would exploit them. So this is just, this is a tomb, but it's not the tomb, but it gives you an idea of what it was like. This stone that you're seeing, this big round stone is about four or five feet um, in diameter. That's a pretty, pretty big thing. And so you can see why people would be like, how are we going to move this thing? And the fact that it was round is kind of interesting too, where you're like, why would, why, I mean, why would you put a door on a grave. You know, you don't, you, why, you don't want to get back in there. But they did. They would put the body in there. They would treat it with the spices to deal with the smell. They would let it decompose and they would put the bones in a little box and they would bury it. And they would actually do this with three, four, five times. If you were poorer, you would have nine or ten bodies in a tomb. If you were rich, you maybe just had one or two, just a few close families. So it was more like a mausoleum. So the ladies come up to the tomb And this stone that they're worried about is rolled away. And then there's this little tiny opening, probably two and a half, three feet across. You have to kind of crouch down uh, to look in. Mark chapter 16, verse 4. But when the ladies looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, he's emphasizing, had been rolled away. Have you ever come home from somewhere with your family or when nobody's home and your front door was wide open? Have you ever had that? Yeah, how many of you just stroll inside like it's no big deal? No. You call someone, you're like, I'm about to enter a house. I think there is a perpetrator in there. You start to use police language. I think there's a perpetrator in there. I want you to know, or you call the police, or you call your husband, or you call someone you don't care about because if they get murdered, it's not a big deal. And you have them get, do some reconnaissance within, within the house to make sure that it's safe for you. You don't just walk in and say, oh, I'm sure it's fine, right? I don't think you do. It's probably a kid that left it open, but you've listened to too many true crime podcasts. (laughs) But what do you not do when you see a tomb and the stone is not where it's supposed to be? What do you not do? You do not go in. This is like horror movie stuff. (laughs) When you're watching a horror movie and you're like, why would you go in the basement? The killer is always in the basement. Don't go in the attic. That's where the ghosts are. Don't go in the tomb. Why would you do that? But what did they do? Verse 5, they entered the tomb. Oh, okay. That's not what I would have done, but all right. Second part of verse 5, and it it says, They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. There's a good reason to believe that this young man is probably an angel, but I love what the Bible says next. This is interesting. It says, and they were alarmed. You would be alarmed too. 
even if it wasn't a grave, even if it was your home and the door was left open and you walked inside and there was a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, you'd be like, what? You would be alarmed. I was just thinking that the Bible is so understated, it cracks me up because there's no way that they were alarmed. Like none of the ladies walked in that tomb. You didn't crawl into that tomb, see this young man sitting there and say, oh my, you startled me. You know, that's not what was happening. (laughs) They weren't alarmed. They were terrified. There is a haunted house where at one of the scariest moments in the haunted house, they have a camera that takes low light pictures of the people who are being scared. And I just want you to just have a visual of what I think the ladies who entered that tomb and saw that young man sitting there on the right side probably actually looked like. It probably looked more like this. <laughs> now, I've got three of them, because I, and I put them in order of, of how much I liked their fear on their faces. So this is the first one. Uh, here's the second one. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> Because honestly, the ladies are going in, they see a young man, they're alarmed. Uh, And here's my favorite, and it's particularly because of the two ladies over here. (laughs) The dad's trying to play it cool. He's trying to play it cool. I don't know exactly what those ladies would have looked like in that tomb, but it was more like that than, oh, I was alarmed. I cannot. Young man, what are you doing in this dead man's tomb? I don't think it was that. And it's preserved in scripture forever. I think that there was some loud screaming happening Easter morning. And they were not shouts of joy. I think that's what was going on. Mark chapter 16, verse 6. The young man says, do not be alarmed. Well, okay, easy for you to say. He said, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? Now imagine, imagine trying to wrap your minds around what this young man, this angel, is saying. Imagine this. There's no category for this. This is not one of the menu multiple choice options that you had as you walked up to lay spices on the dead body to keep it from smelling. You were not thinking any of this is going to happen, much less the news that you get. You know what those words mean. He has risen. You speak the language. You know exactly what he's saying, but there's no place for those words to go. You don't know what to do with them in reference to a dead human. You don't under, what do you mean? He has risen. Somebody took him? No. Are you sure it was Jesus? Because look, I love the fact that the angel kind of walks them through it. It feels like they're saying, wait, what do you mean? Somebody took his body? No, no, no. He has risen. Wait, uh, we don't understand. Okay, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene? Yeah, that's the guy that we saw die. We saw that. Yes, we're looking for him. The one that was crucified? (laughs) Yes, we're looking for that Jesus. He was crucified. He's not here. What? That does not compute. And then you can imagine the young man stepping aside and saying, look, this is where they laid him. He's not here. What? What's going on? Here's what's happening. A new story is being written. A story they could not have anticipated, they, could have not, they, they, they couldn't have guessed at, they, could, there's no, they could not have figured out this is what was happening. This is a brand new story. They couldn't have imagined it. The angel says, but go tell his disciples and Peter. Remember we said this is probably Peter's account. Go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And Peter... Now, if you recall, if you've grown up around church, you know that Peter's last two interactions with Jesus hadn't been great. The first one, 
while the, the heat was really starting to rise on Jesus because people were like, this, we got to take this guy out. And Jesus wanted to go pray. And he asked three of his trusted apostles to go with him. Hey, will you watch what's going on? Will you, will you watch while I go pray? And I think in part what he's saying, will you watch while I make myself vulnerable, while I close my eyes and I get on my knees and I pour myself out to God? Will you make sure no Romans are coming to stab me in the back? Will you watch and what happens to Peter? Falls asleep. Falls asleep on the job. This Peter who said, I will never forsake you. This Peter who was willing to pull swords, he falls asleep on the job. But what's the second thing that happens to Peter? Well, I mean, he literally, Mark chapter 14, verse 71, began to call down curses and he swore to them. This is Peter following uh, the procession of Jesus' arrests. Uh, He swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. And then immediately the rooster crowed the second time. I watched a documentary when I was uh, a kid. I was probably 12 or 13 years old, and I don't know why I watched it, but the, this family had tragically lost their dad, and they were interviewing one of the kids, and the kid had said, I never got to say goodbye to him. And I, something about that just deeply affected me. So for the next year, I made very sure to say goodbye to every family member in case I died, you know, or they died. And I'm sure it was very odd to my family as I was leaving the house and I would turn back and I would say, bye mother, (laughs) bye father, see you on the other side. You know, and I would go to the basketball court or whatever, you know, because it would haunt me if something happened because of that documentary I watched. Imagine how it haunted Peter to know that his last interaction with Jesus, this man that he loved, that he claimed he was going to give his life for, had been like, I don't know that guy. I don't know that guy. Imagine how that haunted. And when the angel says, hey, go tell the disciples and make sure you get Peter because he's probably not doing great. Make sure you let him know what happened. Wow. Now, this is amazing because the Bible is not a Hallmark movie. The way that Mark ends is crazy. Mark chapter 16, verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that is where Mark ends. That's where it ends. But it feels like Mark lost the last page of the sermon. Like, what's happening? What's going on? The most compelling answer is that Mark meant to end the story here. And I love this. I love the idea that he meant to end the story here. Because as you're reading it, right? You're reading the story. And I love doing this to my kids when I read to them. And they're getting too old for me to do this anymore. But I love doing this. I read and I try to end reading for the night on a cliffhanger. Because my favorite thing is when they go, ah, you know, read more. And I feel like that's kind of what Mark is doing. Like, hey, what, what, what happened next? But the deal is, is the person could look up. They could see that there, are, there were hundreds of thousands of Christians in the world. We can look up from the book of Mark and we can see billions with a B of Christians in the world. Billions. There's sort of an epidemic um, of hopelessness in the world. You've seen it. You've seen it in the news. You've seen it in your co-workers. You've seen it in your co-workers when they talk about the struggles their, their children are having. You've seen it in your classmates. There's an epidemic of hopelessness. And I think there's an epidemic of hopelessness because the stories we're telling ourselves are not playing out like we want them to. But there is a story that we have access to that does not end. It doesn't end with death. It doesn't end with 
this life. The story is unfinished, and Mark's ending forces us to consider where it goes. What's next? What's next for them, and what's next for me? And this is true because Jesus came back. Your story can have a different ending than maybe where it's headed even right now. Now you have a choice. You have a choice. You don't have to believe it. I, I maybe haven't given you any reason to believe it. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to get it. It's a big claim. You can look up for it for yourself. But if this is true, your story can look very, very different. Very different. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up on the stage. We're going to sing a song uh, called Living Hope. And I'm no music guy, I'm no conductor, but as we sing this song, it walks us through the story of the gospel. It walks us through his life and then his death. But there's this part, after the second chorus, there's this part where the line says, Then came the morning that sealed the promise. Your buried body began to breathe out of the silence. The roaring lion, Jesus of Nazareth, the lion of Judah, declared... The grave has no claim on me and any of us. But here's what we do in the song. We sing that and then we repeat it. We sing it again. And the second time you sing it, it's not, you don't, you sing this first part quietly. Then came the morning. You sing it quietly. But then you get to the second part and you sing it like you mean it. You declare it. And I've said this so many times and probably sick of hearing me. Sometimes you sing things because you believe them to be true. Sometimes you sing things so that they will be true in your life. Paul wrote that the, the sting of death is sin. And Jesus Christ forgave our sin on the cross, but he destroyed the grave on Easter Sunday. And that's what we celebrate, that you don't have to be burdened down. That truth can transform the way that you live. I know it's a lot. I know it's a lot. I know some of you don't believe it. That's okay. I'm so glad you're here. I know some of you don't get it. That's okay. Stick it out. It took me a long time to get it too, and I promise you, I still don't get it. But we have this amazing thing that we can believe, that we can declare, that we can live, that can transform our lives, the lives of our families and our children and the communities around us. Church, let's live it. Let's live that living hope.